Thanks for joining us again here on the Grief Observed podcast. I am your host, Brad Morell. And if you want to be on the podcast to, uh, to tell your story, please contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, my guest today is an author and mental health professional, uh, Diana Ward. She is here to speak about the loss of her son. And uh, she has a, a book coming out as we record uh, as of today. Of course, you'll be hearing this just a little bit later, but uh, we'll be talking to her about that. Diana, thanks for joining me on the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here and being so uh, willing to talk about things that you've experienced in life. And um, really, I'm, I'm sure this pushes you in in your own field as far as helping others. And uh, so we'll just get started. Why don't you tell tell the audience a little bit about yourself and we'll just kind of go from there. Okay. Well, let's see, where do I begin? I was born in San Diego, California, but at the age of 16, um, I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada with my parents. Um, I do have an identical twin as well. Um, so I spent the majority of my life in Las Vegas. I kind of consider that home. Um, my parents still live there and other sister still lives here, but um, moved out to Southwest Florida about three, almost three years ago. Um, yeah, actually February 1st will be three years. Um, just love the beach, but can't afford the California coast. So this was the next best thing, but I really actually love it out here. Um, so I have two sisters out here and my two adult daughters out here with me. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I, I like that you say Nevada. Um, there's where I'm at in Tennessee, everybody's like Nevada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so funny to hear people and, and where they're from and how they pronounce. Like I've, I've heard Colorado and Colorado, you know, yep. it's uh potato, potato, right? Exactly. So. I know if you're from Nevada, um, yeah, we don't like it when we hear Nevada because yeah, almost Nevadans pronounce it, but yeah, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're all in this together. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is funny. It's uh, my dad, the way he pronounces things sometimes, I hope he's not listening to this particular podcast, but it's, it's funny. I, I don't know. It's just funny to hear him. He's, he is quite more Southern than I am. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's weird growing up in sales. Most of my younger adult life, um, I tend to mimic who I'm speaking to. And it's, it's so weird. Like, uh, I've got a buddy, Mike, who is very country. And when, when he comes around, you know, my wife will be like, you've been around Mike today, haven't you? Your <laughs> accent is very country. Um, so anyway, well, just kind of funny. Yes, that is. That's funny you say that because I, most of my, um, young adult life, I was in sales as well. So in Vegas, I was in real estate during the boom and then the crash. I've done timeshare sales, um, new home sales, um, retail, all that. So I didn't get into the mental health field till later in life. I actually was age 37 when I went back to school and got a bachelor's degree um, and then a master's. But so, yeah, my most of my life is in sales. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I did not start doing... Uh, licensed professional counseling until I was 42. So, and I'll be 49 in October. So uh, I, I think sometimes we appreciate these types of fields more. Um, and of course I can't speak for somebody fresh out of school, but 
I enjoy the fact that I went through some bumps and bruises in life to kind of get me to this point, um, to know what people are going through as opposed to just reading it out of a textbook. So, um, it's, I don't know, it's more meaningful to me. So, um, so I know you want to speak about your son and maybe we'll start there and then kind of, uh, maybe glad into the book later as far as, uh, inspiration for the book and, and as well as, uh, your job. So let's, let's first take some time to honor who your son was as an individual. Tell me about him. Okay. Well, um, he, you know, he was on the spectrum, which, you know, back then, this is 20 ish years ago. Um, we didn't really know that or understand it as much as we do now, but, just so he's a very sensitive child to his environment um nothing was you know in the middle or gray to him it was very black and white mm -hmm. um very extreme so you know when he was having a bad day or he was unhappy it showed and um so you know i remember him either being really really happy and excited or really really mad and miserable mm -hmm. um and he was my first child. So that was really hard for me as a new mom, um, not really understanding what was going on with him. Even from a very, very young baby, um, he was very sensitive to hot, cold sounds, all that good stuff. Um, but, you know, later on, he, you know, as, as I kind of learned what made him tick, so to speak, or learned more about what was going on with him, um, he was really, truly a genius. He was very bright. Um, he, you know, when he wanted to know something or learn something, he learned it to the extreme. So he could solve the Rubik's cube in under a minute. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and I'm still working on 49 years and still can't solve one. So. <laughs> I don't even try. Um, and then he really got into like origami. So he could take the tiniest piece of paper or the biggest piece of paper and turn it into some form of origami so that was one of his kind of obsessions then he went into being obsessed with magic mm. got into that and then as a, a young adult um he got really into music and, and dancing um so he went into djing um and just when he does something he just does it magnificently and just dives all in which you know and Oh, and the other thing he was really, really into were computers. So at the age of 15, he built his own gaming PC. Wow. And I'm talking on his own. Like, I don't know that kind of stuff. I wasn't into that kind of stuff. Um, he would order it all online, have it shipped to the house, put it together because he's really into gaming too. Um, just really bright and brilliant. Um, but, you know, there were the struggles as well. So um, he just you know, socially struggled, um, didn't really learn in the normal, you know, um, environment that most kids, you know, public school learn in. He just, you know, so that was kind of the hard thing for him, even though he's really bright. He just, he just didn't fit into a box ever, but that made him beautiful as well. Yeah. So you, you stated, um, as a new mom, this was different, you know, you, you knew something was different. When did you, find out that he was on the spectrum um gosh let me think here um i would say probably 
probably when he was around six or seven. Mm. Um, and it was the formal diagnosis was pervasive development disorder, which okay. now, you know, it's all kind of different now how they diagnose that, but that's what it was on paper. Um, but prior to that, you know, I just tried and tried to get answers. Um, so he, you know, doctors, again, just didn't understand it back then. So it was, oh, he's ADHD. He's this and that. And not to say that maybe he wasn't, but I feel like they were just kind of throwing different things in, in the symptoms that he was presenting with. They would just throw this at him, throw that at him, and then come to find out if you bottled that all up in one, that's what gave you that that spectrum on the autism spectrum. Because, you know, that's depending on what, you know, how far on the spectrum you are. You know, he was very high functioning, obviously. Um, but um, finally, it all made sense when he got back. Diagnosis. Yeah, that's one disorder um, that I I really wish that they would redefine somehow because the spectrum is far and wide. I, I have a nephew who is uh, wow, he'll be eighteen in July, I think, and uh, he is on the spectrum. And you know, as far as education, uh, I believe they said that he would never have more than like a third grade education, the equivalent of um, he can put together, you know, a 30,000 Lego thing together in about two hours, like brilliant yeah. kid, you know, but um, it's just how they learn and the things that they bring to life are quite different than what you and I bring. Right. And um but we love them just the same. And, you know, uh, it, it's amazing to watch my nephew. I mean, he, he is brilliant in his own way for sure. Yes. Hmm. So when, like, did things get more difficult in his life at any certain point, like where you saw maybe a turn? Um, I would say, High school, freshman in high school, because he still stayed in the normal public school system um, till the very end, right before he graduated high school. I put him in a, a different setting, but he still got a normal high school diploma. Um, but I would say probably freshman year in high school. Um, and I can only guess, you know, how it all came about. But what was introduced to him there were substances. Mm. You know? Um, you know, maybe I think it just started out with something simple as vaping, but then, you know, experimenting with different things and it just spiraled from there because, um, because he always struggled with the sensory disorders. Um, I think he was self-medicating, um, just, I think he wanted to fit in, feel better, feel normal. Um, and so it just progressively got worse, you know, mm. drugs, alcohol and all that. Okay. Was he close with his sisters? Oh gosh, that's a huge question. Um, you know, Cody would, um, what's his name, by the way? I don't know if we ever said that. No, Cody. no, you didn't. I, I, I was, I'm always careful to ask people certain details. I figure they'll, they'll release them when they want to. So, yes. okay. okay. So Cody. All right. Yeah. Cody would defend his family no matter what, if, if somebody hurt us or says something bad about us or whatever, but he would also give his sisters hell. Um, he, you know, of course they 
all lived together. And so they knew each other's little buttons. Um, and, and Cody, for the most part, was very hard to get along with because of his, um, you know, I mean, so sensitive to his environment. So he's always irritable, always mm -hmm. on fight or flight, um, you know, defense. And so, of course, his sisters being sisters, you know, bugged him. Um, so they fought a lot. Um, so, you know, I think throughout his life, it, 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 depending on the day or the time, I mean, yes, they would get along, but I would say the majority of the time they did not get along. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, sometimes that's just the brother and sister way too. Yeah. I, I grew up between two girls and, uh, I know back, back in the day, I always fought with them. That was just, you had to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about what happens in, I guess, the later stages of Cody's life. Like what, what was going on that, uh, were, were there any warnings, any signs that he was really struggling? Oh, yes, yes. There were many, many signs. Um, so the, the, like I said, the drug use, um, kind of started it. Um, so probably, I mean, like I said, i became more aware of it. I'm, I'm sure it was there, like I said, probably since freshman, sophomore year in high school, but became more aware of it. Um, when he was around 17 um, is when he came home drunk and high. And um, that's when I was just like, nope, not gonna happen in my house. You know, that is one thing that I, um, I wasn't naive to think that, that all my, all three of my kids weren't experimenting with something. Uh, I did that as well growing up, but I definitely was always very clear. I was divorced too. Um, so split custody between the, the ex-husband, but so when they were with me, you know, I always made it very clear, no drugs or alcohol in my house. I won't um, condone it or enable it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you're doing it and I'm not aware of it, you know, whatever, but I'm not, you know, so he came home um, drunk and high and I just, you know, he was 17. I, I want to say almost 18. I can't remember specifically, but um, I said, pack your stuff here. So he did, he, he moved out. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a tough thing uh, about being a parent to, to an addict child is the last thing you want to do is like send them out the door out of like your, I don't know, you feel like you have some sort of um, control over their protection, you know, to keep them safe, even though you know, they are still their own person going out there um, living their lives. But, you know, doing that and kicking them out, it was a horrible feeling um, because I was like, you know, this could make or break him. Um, you know, it could either wake him up to have him say, oh crap, I better stop what I'm doing, change my ways. I got to go, you know, deal with this I'm out on my own now not living under my mom's roof or it could give him even more an opportunity to use drugs and drink and all that more so unfortunately it did go the other way he did even more mm -hmm. um, and he was such a different person because I mean yes I think he did the drugs um to, to feel somewhat normal but he was a very curious person so he was always searching like the spiritual side of things or just understanding life and the deeper meaning. He was never a surface level person. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when you 
talk to you, it would always go very deep. And sometimes I would like get exhausted by it. Cause you know, sometimes I'm like the end of my day working in a psych hospital, I'd come home and I just want to check out. And he would come in and just be like, mom, what's the meaning of life, you know, and, and go really deep. So the drugs that he used kind of, you know, went down that kind of road, like um, DMT. Mm. Um, he did a lot of ketamine. Um, and he, so when I would say, you know, you know, you really can't, you, you're hurting your body, you're hurting your mind, you know, you struggle as it is emotionally and mentally, these are not good for you. And his defense was, they helped me mom, because I'm seeing like things differently spiritually and stuff. So he wasn't your average addict that's just like, oh, I just want to get high. It really, I mean, I'm sure that was part of it, but he, he never had just such a simple answer to anything in his way of thinking. And so it's like, it kind of stumped me. I'm like, um, like, you know, your normal response as a parent is no, it's bad for you. And it's like, wait, I have to really rethink how I'm going to approach this. And that's how I actually had to do with him his whole entire life. You could not use your traditional way of parenting or disciplining. It never worked for him. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's uh, odd that you mentioned ketamine and in my area, especially, and, and there's a lot of uh, places in the East right now that you see these ketamine clinics popping up and, and I do know there are some benefits of ketamine, but um, but there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, we're just trying to put a Band-Aid over some things as opposed to dealing with the problem. Um, I know ketamine is really good for those who are in acute crisis, uh, you know, with suicidal thinking like that can break that really quickly. But these ketamine clinics, I know it's more of... Uh, um, I hate to throw people under the bus and, um, but it's almost like they get you onto ketamine as opposed to dealing specifically with what are the problems? Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and I'm not trying to, uh, I don't know if you have different thoughts and certainly I'm okay if, if you do, <laughs> what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Um, I, I think I'm along the same thought of, as you are I mean I work in the psychiatric hospital and, and mm -hmm. like you said well, I I'm used to treating people in crisis and so we're, we're trying to save their lives so to speak in that moment so to me um any psych meds whether it be ketamine or just whatever you know med if, if it helps you in that crisis situation to save your life then I'm all for it but I yes. also am with you on the fact that I feel that the medical field too often throws meds at people as a band-aid and as you, you were treating the symptoms, but what's the true core issue that is bringing you into that moment? You know, a lot of times I think it's unresolved trauma. Yes. That leads to whatever state of, um, you know, whether it be addiction or, or mental illness disorders or whatnot. Um, so I think, you know, for the most part, and it's not every situation because everybody's a little bit different, but I really do wish that we would delve more into treating um, or, you know, going through the trauma, resolving the trauma, because that I think is what the bulk of many of today's problems are. I agree. And, you know, trauma, I guess, is highly subjective. And, uh, you know, and, and that's good because what 
you know, what you experienced in life may be very traumatic to you. And I'm thinking that, okay, that seems fairly normal, but um, to each in the individual, it's very real. Uh, one of the things that I do in my practice is doing EMDR. I love it. And for anybody listening who does not know what EMDR is, uh, definitely look it up. It's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And the best way I describe it to my clients, um, I usually use the example of a car wreck. Um, say you're in a car wreck and the first thing you think is, I'm unsafe or I'm going to die. Those two are kind of melted in your brain together and start creating these pathways. So now it's like every time I go to grab a car handle, I feel unsafe. And it may start to uh, flood into other areas of life where, you know, I don't feel safe anywhere. So the first thing we've got to do is desensitize a person to that particular uh, visual of the car wreck and that thought of I'm unsafe or I'm going to die. After we do that, then we come back and uh, think about that same horrible car wreck, but this time, what did you want to believe? Well, I wanted to believe that I was safe. And I, I always state, you know, I'm not trying to repaint history here. I'm not trying to make you believe something that's not real, but I want you to think about the car wreck and think I am safe. So that's the reprocessing part in the brain. And uh, it is just so awesome to use, especially in trauma. Um, you know, it's great with anxiety. There's there's so many things. You know, I've even used it with uh, level of urge, like with drinking and things like that. I, I've not had as much success in those areas with trauma. It's almost like an instant. Uh, I, I won't say instant. That, that's probably unfair. I've, I've had some times where... I knock it out of the park on the first try. And then there's some, some people I've had come five, six sessions later feeling much, much better. Um, with substance use, it, it's, it is a little bit trickier and I've had less success there with it. But uh, anyway, I think like you stated, dealing with the trauma, dealing with the problem at hand, that's where we really need to camp out and, um, the problem is getting people into the counseling office or, you know, it's, uh, um, or, or even just talking about their problems sometimes, um, especially with men. Well, like we don't, we're not as emotional. Um, so I think just getting us to talk, getting anyone to talk now, the stigma I do believe has fallen quite a bit since COVID I, I've seen, I stay full, you know, on the days that I work, it is, I've got a turnstile at my front door. It's in and out, in and out all day long. Um, so people are actually getting out and dealing with their mental health. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was a big rant. And th this is your podcast, not mine. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I haven't personally gone through it or used it, but know very many people that have had success with the MDR. It, it is the newest, latest, greatest thing um, at least it's probably been around a long time, but I think more people are, are utilizing it. Um, and I think, yeah, I think more of that needs to happen. And the other thing is, um, it, it frustrates me because I mean, mental illness runs my family quite a bit and it's the insurance and, or, um, accessibility, whether it be financial or whatever, um, 
is that needs to change too. So, but that's yeah. a different, different rant on a different day. <laughs> yeah. It's uh insurance is, is a thing. It is uh, if I could be self pay only, I would do it. I just hate for people to have benefits that they can't use. So that's why I got in the insurance game. Um, but I, I will state um, just because I'm still frustrated that, I did tell one insurance carrier this month to take a hike just because I don't feel like all these payers have uh, people's you know, best interest at hand, whether it be their providers or their clients or customers, right? It's uh, unfortunately health insurance has just, uh, it's, it's taken a big toll over the years and it's not what it used to be. Um, no. So, and, and that can be a major factor in somebody coming or not coming to counseling. You know, if it's covered, like sometimes there's EAP programs where a company, you know, has uh, basically got something with a payer where, where they'll take care of, say, you know, five, 10 sessions. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's all it takes for somebody to get on a better track is let me just go in, talk about a problem, blow it out for a few sessions, and I'm back to normal life. Um, or it may be that, that entryway that, that says, okay, I've never gone to counseling, but Hey, this is nothing but a little bit of gas and time out of my pocket since mm -hmm. the company's paying for it. And that right. may be a great entryway for people to get in and see that, okay, not every therapist as, as you and I were talking, uh, before we punched record, not every therapist is that one that you see on TV that's, uh, you know, the the guy that's like, eh, tell me how that makes you feel, you know? And it's like, people don't need that. They need real, um, somebody that's willing to listen, to walk with them through the fire, if you will. So yeah. um, tell me a little bit more about this book. Like what, I, I wrote a book last year. It was a divorce recovery workbook. And I kind of swore that I would never write another book. It It is a challenge. It is, uh, if I had hair besides on my face, I would pull it out. Um, tell me more about your book. Okay. Well, um, so I, to start with, I, you know, have a bachelor's degree, master's, and then I went a year into a doctorate in clinical psychology. So that's where I at least started to know how to just write in general. I mean, as you know, you write a lot of papers, oh, yeah. a lot of research, write a lot of papers. So, but that's the only writing that I had ever known or was used to. Um, but um, when my son passed away, um, I was out, he did, he lived in Vegas at the time. I just moved out here. And so I had to fly back to Vegas, um, obviously to deal with everything. And I was in a hotel room with my two daughters and my twin sister. Um, not, not a fun time at all. Um, but I, we were just sitting in the hotel room and um, all of a sudden it just came into my mind. And I said it out loud, out of nowhere, I'm going to write a book about mm. and his journey. Um, so it was, like I said, I've never thought about writing a book, never wanted to write a book. I've written so many papers and I'm like, I'm overwriting. <laughs> um, but so I, that day I said it. And then um, a couple of months later, uh, got back to, you know, Florida and things kind of settled down after his death and everything. And um, just said, well, I'm going to start writing this. 
And so I would only write on the weekends, like either Saturday or Sunday morning, um, those are my days off. Um, I'd go to the beach or just go somewhere quiet and um, just would start typing on my computer. And I, what I did is basically the book is literally from his, his date of birth. It's like chronological mm. because he started, he struggled. I'm talking literally as he even as young as being a baby um, with different, you know, being on the spectrum, sensory disorders, and then later diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder. And um, then he had a couple psychotic breaks. Um, so I just started at the beginning and just almost like journaling, quite honestly. And the funny thing that I like to tell people is in my bachelor's, um, during my bachelor's degree, I had a class, I think it was group therapy dynamics or something like that. And part of, you know, passing that class was the whole semester you had to journal. And it just could be about anything or about the class or whatever. I hated journaling. I really? absolutely hated it. Can't really tell you why. Um, I literally didn't do that assignment. And at the end, he's like, you're going to get a C in this class because you didn't journal. But really, Diana, you're, you're an A student. And I'm like, yep, that's it. <laughs> and he goes, I'm going to give you a chance. Write a 10-page paper about your experience in this class. And I'll consider that your journal. And I'm like, crap. So I did <laughs> it. But anyways, that tells you how I, I didn't. I didn't write, I didn't like journaling. Um, but so the way it kind of came out to me was like journaling, you know, um, just remembering him, like I said, from the day he was born to his last days on earth. Um, and I just wrote for, I would say a few hours, like I said, on a Saturday or Sunday. And it only took me probably about six months of that. And it was done. Um, and I mean, like I said, I didn't set out to do it, but I did it. And then um, and then after that, I didn't know what to do with it because like I said, I've never written a book, never was an author. I didn't even understand how to go about getting it published. So I started doing research, you know, just online, like how do you get a book published? I don't know. Um, so I learned quite a bit doing that um, because there are traditional publishers, um, as I'm sure you know, like the big, big house ones, you know, um, I can't even think of any, but I think when people think of publishing a book, they think of those big um, publishers that are out sure. there um, that basically you have to be famous or be a well-known author to even get looked at by those people. Um, so then I was like, well, I uh, sent out my um, offer to a couple of literary agents because then I read online, oh, you need a literary agent. So I Googled that. I was like, what the heck is that? Came up with a few and it said, you know, pick one that's in your genre. Well, this obviously was a memoir. So um, I was like, okay, Google mem uh, literary agent memoir, or whatever. Found a few, emailed them, nothing. And I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't working. Um, then, um, then of course the self-publishing thing is huge right now. And um, you know, you hear about that, like you can just publish your own book on Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Well, I went on there, downloaded like how you do it, kind of um, started you know, I printed it out and then I just would do like check marks. Okay, I have to do this. And it's a lot of formatting of the material in the computer and on your manuscript. It's a lot of formatting stuff, which I'm not tech savvy at all. So I started to do that. And I'm talking, it was like 20 pages of lines of different steps you have to take to be able to even upload your manuscript to Amazon to publish, self-publish it. I got to like the fifth line. I was like, nope, this isn't for me. Very time consuming. <laughs> So I was like, crap, what do I do? And so then I came across 
a hybrid publisher, which is somewhat traditional publishing, but you pay them to do the work, but you reserve all rights to it. You keep most of the proceeds and you have a say in every single little thing that goes into the, the, the cover, the colors, the design, the, every word. They cannot change anything in it without your approval. And so I liked that because I was like, this is my story and I don't want anybody changing it. And right. not that I'm going out to get rich by any means, but I'm like, this is like, this is hard work. And I'm going to make sure that I keep, you know, I would just want it to be mine. So I found, I mentioned this to a coworker and she said, you know, there's a really good publishing company here in Naples, Florida, which is 30 minutes away from where I live in Florida. And I was like, really? She goes, yes, yeah, O'Leary Publishing. So I Googled that, went on their website, blah, blah, blah and scheduled a free consultation. And we videoed, um, we did like a virtual meeting and it's the main um, two people involved in it are, it's two ladies. Um, it's fairly small, but it's growing. Um, and they only do nonfiction. And mm. most of their books they publish are along the lines of like mine, people telling their story of, you know, heartache or whatever, kind of self-help or spiritual growth type books. And I'm like, I like that. So anyways, um, long story short, I sent them my manuscript for a review. They did a review on it. They loved it. They wanted it. But then the next step was, oh, it's going to cost me $10,000. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't have that handy. Um, so I sat on it for about a year. So I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to come up with this money, but I'm going to publish this book one way or another. So eventually I just took out a personal loan for it. So I'm like, I'm going to do this. I want to get this story out there mainly to share my personal story, um, hoping to help somebody else that's going through something similar, losing a child or whatever. But then also because I work in the mental field, I want to raise awareness to what does mental illness look like? What does addiction look like? Um, to not only raise awareness and, and on suicide as well, but to also um, help other people have more compassion towards mm. those that are living with any of those types of, um, you know, illnesses. Um, because, you know, my son's story, um, you know, people were really mean to him, you know, and that's the other thing, um, because he was so different. Um, and so, you know, it just, again, want to hopefully other people will read the story and be like, wow, the next time I see somebody that's a little different or on the spectrum or struggling with, you know, mental illness or in, in a psychosis, um, you know, something like that, have some empathy because it's, it's not easy. And, you know, um, the one thing that I always say in my family, my daughters and sisters say is then my child fought for 22 years. He was on this earth. And let me just tell you, I don't know that I could have fought that long to stay on this earth in his body and his mind, because it was hard, you know, as a mother watching it and, you know, going alongside him, it was heartbreaking and hard for me but I didn't have to live through what he lived through. And so mm. for him to stand for 22 years to me was a long, it was a long fight and he fought hard. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you were um, committed to doing the book and that uh, tells me what, what he meant to you and, and also what other people mean to you, you know, knowing that you want people to, uh, I think especially if somebody's going through something very similar to you, just for them to know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it's certainly a position nobody ever wants to be in going through the loss of a child, but to know that 
uh, they're not alone. That that's huge. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's definitely um one of the goals of the book as well. So um yeah. So basically this this book goes live on Amazon today. Um yeah, it's live right now. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's called Behind the Smile, the heartbreaking journey of raising a son with addiction and mental illness. So um it's available paperback as well as um digital, you know, ebook um on amazon now so yeah all right i will definitely put that in the uh show description so people can just click on that and go directly to it so i definitely need to get a copy myself um so yeah that's that's awesome so tell me how this um loss affects your personal work now like what are you more sympathetic to people in mental health knowing um worst case scenario yes um you know i always had compassion i would say um you know obviously because like i said mental illness runs my family and and you know my child um you know raising him so i always had compassion for those that are struggling with it but now I definitely have even more compassion for people just in general that are grieving because I've, I, you know, I've lost my grandparents, but they were super, you know, old and I, you know, they lived kind of far away. So they weren't in my everyday life. So it didn't really hit me that hard. I mean, you know, obviously I was sad when they died, but I never had a, a really great loss in my life until this. Um, so now, um, you know, walking through the journey or grief journey definitely gives me compassion for those grieving now even more. What's the thing that maybe um, has caught you by surprise in your grief journey with your son that uh, maybe you hadn't realized before or something that maybe is different than other losses? Um, well, there's a few things. So, you know, him taking his life um you know you think back it's obvious one um didn't get to say goodbye although i definitely tried to help him as much as i could i don't have any regrets with that definitely loved him super hard have no regrets with that but um you know one thing going back to it is he called me four days before they found his body um and I missed his call. I was sleeping. And so woke up the next day right away. Hey, you know, tried to call him, went to voicemail, text him. Hey, sorry, I missed your call. I was sleeping. You know, hope you're okay, dude, or whatever. Text him. No response. So, you know, those kinds of things go through your head. Um, and that can happen with any loss. I mean, we all, you know, sure. car, whatever. But, um, you know, it's definitely given me the approach with my daughters, especially is I don't take anything for granted with, you know, with people in general, people I love in my life, but especially my daughters. So even though maybe, you know, I'm tired that day or, um, and my daughters call me with, you know, they're, my boyfriend's being mean to me or whatever, something that seems, you know, trivial. I listen, I offer them my support and my love and any chance I can be with them, I'm with them. So that's definitely changed my outlook on life. Um, and, 
Um, trying to think what other ways you said that. What was the question again? Sorry, I got off track. Well, just anything that that took you by surprise with this grieving oh. experience versus others. Yes. So the other the other thing that really has stood out to me even to this day, because today is actually his twenty fifth birthday. Hmm. Um, today is grief. No matter what, how the death occurred, grief is a lonely road in the sense like i have a lot of support i have wonderful family friends i if anybody you know if you want to talk about perfect support system it's mine however nobody can walk my exact grief so in that sense it's lonely not that i'm alone i have a lot of love and support but nobody else even you know my twin sister was very close with my son she's my twin we're very close her grief is a different walk and different journey than mine. And I was his mother. So again, my um, relationship with him was different than his sister's or his dad or his, you know, whatever. So it truly is a very lonely journey in that sense. Like I have to walk my grief journey. The only way, only for me, I mean, it's only, it's mine. So it's very strange. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like cutting a road that nobody else will ever travel. And it's it's weird. Like, I mean, we've we will all travel down a grief road, but not the same, you know. Right. And it's uh you know, I always use the example if two siblings lose a parent, well, they grieve differently. You know, it's yeah. uh they may be grieving at the same time and they may be grieving the same person, but it's a different road. And yes. it is a lonely road because you've got to figure out how do I stay healthy? What are ways that I cope? Um, you know, are there ways that I can still love that person and, and stay connected to them somehow through my life? And, uh, you know, there's just so much to grief that I think we, we overlook so many days, you know? Yeah. So obviously writing a book is, is in my mind, very creative. Uh, even if it is just thoughts in a journal, um, very, very creative. Are there other ways that you have, uh, I guess, found comfort in being creative after your son's passing? Well, the other thing that I do now that I've never done before um, is, so Florida, is, I love Florida because um, being outdoors is just, you can do it every single day almost, other than some rain here and there you know, they call it the endless summer out here. So the weather is always accommodating for me to be outside. Um, so what I do now, I try to do every weekend, at least once, is there's a slough right down the street, which is just a natural preserve. So, and it has a, a long mile, just over a mile long boardwalk. So it's, it's raised a little bit. So there's water all around you. There's trees, there's shrubbery, there's little, um, um, little spots where they have a little um, like patio viewing area into a pond. So you see alligators, birds, squirrels, very beautiful. Anyway, so um, what I do now is I go there at least once a week, um, walk that and do kind of a walking meditation. And I talk to Cody mm -hmm. and I love it. Um, he, I just, I connect with him being outside in nature, which he loved. He actually took his life in the mountains of, outside of Las Vegas, 
Um, so I just, I still really connected to him and I get inspiration there. I talk to him, I cry, whatever, whatever I feel like doing that day. Nice. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, good that we have different ways of, of, uh, being creative or, uh, exercising self-care. Um, you know, whenever somebody's gone through something tragic, I always state, you know, even, even in just anxiety and depression, um, I will state, what is your self-care like? You know, are you eating properly? Are you exercising? Are you getting sleep? Are you getting your nails done? Are you going for a massage? You know, that those are important things that say, you know, I love me and I want to care for myself. And it's not easy to do, especially in times of grief, we start falling apart. And I think there's moments where it's okay to fall apart, but when you pick yourself back up, are you, um, are you taking care of yourself? So, um, trying to think of some other questions, like, have you had any pressure from others to, um, I hate the, the, the terms move on, but do does anyone in your life feel like you should be further along than where you are? No. And I'm so grateful for that. Cause I, you know, I'm on a couple of different grief um, or losing a child like Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear and see that a lot and that's just awful, but thankfully, no, I have not experienced that. Everybody's been very um, supportive, understanding. No, I've never had anybody say that I should move on um, or anything of the sort. Um, so that I'm very grateful because you don't, you know, you just don't ever move on. Um, you learn right. to live with it. Um, you know, you learn to cope with it. And I think you just kind of assimilate it into your being. Um, it never goes away. Um, and I think that's another thing that I didn't really get or understand before this loss is it, it just, it's always there, but you, I try to find still the joy in my life and those you know the sadness the grief can coexist with joy that's the other thing that i didn't realize mm. you can still grief and be sad and miss that person but you can also laugh and, and be joyful and and have things to look forward to as well yeah yeah i know you stated that um your relationship with your daughters changed in the fact that you you are more attentive to their needs um, are there any other relationships in your life that you feel like have changed after the death of Cody? Um, I think overall, I don't think there's just like one specific relationship, but I think overall I do view life a little differently um, that now I, it just kind of, you think it before this happens that, oh, we're all just going to go and live in forever, you know, naively, maybe I don't say that, you know, consciously but i think subconsciously we all think that we have all this time on earth we have all this time no big deal um and that brings to a realization that um oh yeah we all we could go any day any time so i think um not that i do it all day every day because it is hard to keep that in the front of your mind but i i do look at relationships with people um in my life especially you know very important people um that you know you, you could die tomorrow and so, you know, say those things you want to say, say, I love you, say, I care about you, or, mm. you know, just 
share your truths as much as possible and appreciate those people as much as possible because you don't know when they're going to go. Yeah. Um, has it left you thinking about your own mortality at all? Yes. So this is kind of weird, but um, not that I'm suicidal by any means. I, I don't want to die, but knowing in my belief system that I will see him when I die again, mm-hmm. I actually am looking forward to it. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. Yeah. So um, again, not that I want to go today or tomorrow. If I were to, I am okay with that um, because I do know that it's going to be an amazing reunion. You know, I, I feel very similar uh, in the fact that um, at 48 years old, I don't have a bucket list. I feel like everything that I've ever wanted to do, I, I think I've accomplished that. And it's not that I want to die tomorrow, today, whatever. No, I, I want to keep on living. But um, if I were to die tomorrow, I don't think I would feel cheated. You know, right. it's I, I don't need to go see the Eiffel Tower. I don't need to... Uh, say anything to anybody else in my life. Like everybody that I'm in contact knows I love them. Like, and if they don't, then uh, something's wrong because I I tell, I tell my family all the time, you know, and, uh, and I hope that it doesn't require that one more time to make it concrete in their mind, you know? Yes. So I I do understand what you're stating. I really do. And I I think that's, it's great that you feel that way, knowing that, uh, you know, you you are, sounds like complete, to be honest, you know, that that you don't need anything else out of life. And uh, if, if you turn on the TV for five minutes today, you see that everybody's trying to gain more of something out there. They're not happy. They're looking for the wrong things to feel those voids in their heart. And uh sounds like you and I are on the same page that that's, that's not what we're about. We're, we're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's really about uh, love and the relationships and the memories that you make. And yeah, for that, I don't, I don't have any regrets at all. And like I said, even with losing my son the way I did, um, I know for a fact, he knew how much I loved him and fought for him. Unfortunately, that you know, he was 22, and at some point, I had to let it go to where you know he he had to kind of live his life on his terms, and I had to kind of emotionally let go of him, um, you know, and that didn't end well. But I do know he knew how much I loved him, and he still knows that. So. Yeah, I at least want to uh, circle back to the journaling piece. I, I'm a big fan of journaling. I try to get a lot of my clients to journal. I, I do something a little different. It's, there's a little bit of journaling involved, but a lot of it is about my dreams. I dream a lot. I've had a lot of dreams come true. I just want to state that I'm not a psychic. (laughs) Okay. Um, if so, I would have picked the winning lottery numbers a couple of weeks ago, but I, I do, uh, love dreaming. And, uh, so that's kind of how I journal, but, uh, what would you say to someone to encourage them, especially going through a difficult time like you have, to journal their their feelings? What would you tell them? I would say, I, I mean, for me, I I just let it flow. Um, you don't have to 
have it make sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, I think it'll just, when you put it on paper, number one, I feel like it, it clears your mind. And number two, when you do go back and look at what you wrote, and again, it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else, but you know, if it makes sense to you, great. But when you do go back and read it, I think there will be a lot of surprises in there for you as, um, as far as, you know, obviously everybody's situation is different, but how much you've overcome mm -hmm. um, and then also uh, maybe the things that you thought were so important or stressful in that moment or that you just couldn't get through them. I think um, once you go back and look at them and you, you, you will see it really wasn't all that bad and that you did get through it. Mm. Um, and for me, like, I mean, I, it's not really a journal per se, but that's how it kind of started for me with this book. Mm -hmm. Now I go back and, you know, my main thing, what I told somebody just yesterday is I didn't want to only put down all the bad, you know, all the challenges. Cause his life was very challenging. It was very challenging to be his mother, but I didn't want it to be just all bad and like, oh, he had mental illness and it's just horrible and the addiction is just horrible. And it is horrible. But there were also so many good times too. So mm. I think putting it in writing makes you realize, okay, there's some bad and unfortunately there is in everybody's life. But there's also so much good and, and try to hold on to those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well Diana, I, I can't thank you enough for being here with me today to uh, talk about Cody and, and who he was to you in this book. And I, I wish you the absolute best with this book. Um, but I want to leave you with the last word. And if there's anything that you think we've missed or any other encouragement you want to throw out to listeners, just the floor is yours. Well, something that um, has come about since writing this book, and anytime I sign a book, I put this in there. And it's my new mantra for life in general. And it is be kind always because you never know what's behind the smile. Mm. Very nice. And, and, and you're right. You know, a lot of times, uh, and I've said this before on the podcast, you know, one of the things that we ask people that's going through grief is, how are you? And I think a lot of times um, people immediately just state, oh, I'm, I'm okay or I'm fine. And it's like, there is more behind a smile for sure, right? And it's, we, we play cover up a lot of times just, uh, I don't know if it's to avoid difficult situations, but uh, I, I think there there's different reasons why we can smile and go on, but there is more, so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, awesome. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Brad. I appreciate you and all that you do. Thank you for bringing awareness to the world of men, you know, about mental health and breaking the stigma. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. And thank you all for listening uh, to another edition of the Grief Observed podcast. Again, I'll have Diana's information uh, in the show description. I'll have her, her website, her email address, uh, a link to the Amazon uh, book for... Behind the Smile, I hope you check it out. Um, 
And uh, if you want to be on the podcast, shoot me an email at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. Also have a Facebook page now, facebook.com slash griefobservedpodcast. Uh, anyway, thank you all for listening, and I will catch you next time on the Grief Observed Podcast.